This edition of Mission Log is brought to you by the book The Predicates of Fate by V.A. Hazaran. Three dollars lands you in the middle of a robot uprising. The Predicates of Fate. Download it today where ebooks are sold. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 158. Yesterday's Enterprise. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Tasha Yar. Each week on Mission Log, we talk about... Uh, you know, uh, different... hey, hey, wait, wait, wait. Uh, something's wrong. You're not supposed to be here. <laughs> I'm not really Tasha Yar, dude. Whoa. I'm Ken Ray. Yeah, I know. I, I really thought... I just thought we'd go right through that. Ugh. Huh. Each week on Mission Log, we join one Starfleet crew or another, or one Starfleet crew and another, and we go on adventures. Then we talk about those adventures, sussing out the messages, morals, and meanings, and figuring out whether any or all of it stands the test of time. This week, yesterday's Enterprise. Should we just call it a day? <laughs> <laughs> I There is stuff to talk about here. I, I oh, do yeah. believe there is stuff to talk about here. I mean, yeah, if you want to go ahead and jump to the very first question at the end, does this episode hold up? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. There's plenty of other stuff to discuss. There is. But uh, yeah, I don't think we can quite just call it, but... Um, it's a little intimidating, actually. It's one of those that you kind of get to, and it's sort of like, oh, uh, sitting on the edge of forever, or you know, yesterday's sucks. Enterprise, the big ones. You <laughs> Hated <know>. it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, well, I guess maybe. I well, I don't know. I guess we'll find out how it goes as it goes. I personally, I'm in a hurry to get to it, so let's just go ahead and you know do the thing, and then we'll do the other thing, and then we'll get to the thing, right? Um, like letting people know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. Um, Mission Log Pod is that handle. If you'd like to give us a voicemail, you can. 323-522-5641 is the number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents and links to a bunch of other fun things, is missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Ken, before we get too much further along in our story today, we have to mention our advertiser this week, the book The Predicates of Fate by V.A. Hazaran. That's Vreg Hazaran, and uh, he has shared with us and wants to share with Mission Log listeners his book, The Predicates of Fate. Um, and here's what's interesting to know about Vreg. So Vreg is a dyed-in-the-wool sci-fi fan. Um, from a very early age, elementary school, he would actually write Star Trek stories by hand in his notebook. And um, in high school, he even gave an oral presentation about why Star Trek is great and why people who don't like it simply don't understand the complexity of what, what's going on. And I would have to say that he's entirely correct about all of that. Now, his influences are things like Star Trek and Dune and definitely uh, some influence from comedy science fiction like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Red Dwarf and Futurama. So he kind of takes all these ideas and all these styles and and mashes them up into his new book, The Predicates of Fate. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, I mean, there are a couple of things. First of all, you say Dune, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, you have my attention. You say robots, <laughs> and I say, well, okay, you have more of my attention. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a bit of time travel going on in here, and at this point, uh, you've got 
almost my undivided attention, except I will, you know, look a couple of other places to find out what other people are saying. You go to Amazon, you go to, uh, you go to uh, the iTunes bookstore, you go wherever, you know, ebooks are, and here's what you'll hear, or, well, not what you'll hear, but what you'll see. Uh, accidentally thrown into the future by the Temporal Witness Protection Agency, a man arrives in the middle of a robot uprising. It's a race against time to help an unlikely group of renegades against a robot army bent on taking over the galaxy. Will four strangers be able to work together to save the day, or will the robot succeed in wiping out all intelligent life forms of the cosmos? Now, I do have a little bit of a problem with that, because I don't think robots winning automatically means there's no more intelligent life. But I'm willing to, I'm willing to give it a chance. And, you know, also uh, for $3, I'm willing to give it a chance. In fact, I'm willing to give almost anything a chance for $3, which... <laughs> Has led to some interesting stories, and you know, yeah. maybe, maybe like the predicates of fate, uh, we will certainly have to see, won't we? That's like half the cost of a venti caramel macchiato. <laughs> <laughs> that, that means nothing to me. Say it's like a say it's like a third of the cost of a movie, because I actually go to movies. I don't, you know, drink, you know, caramel macchiati, whatever those were. But I That's mean, yeah, you're, you're, bargain. Yeah. Well, yeah, your, your point, your point is well made. It's uh, you know. A bargain at a bargain at twice the price, which I guess would make it four times the bargain at the price it is. <laughs> right. Well, and what it is again is the predicates of fate by V. A. Hazarin. And uh, honestly, all you have to do is go wherever ebooks are sold. Go to you know Amazon, wherever you use, and type in the predicates of fate, and three bucks will get you an exciting and funny science fiction novel, totally original, and uh, let's support a fellow Trek fan. And now, without further ado, tons of trivia. <laughs> right. There's a lot of trivia, Ken. There's, uh, on a scale, the scale that we use here at Mission Log, there's about a million trivia. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> John Champion has all the trivia this week. Yeah, Ken has all the trivia. So yeah. we're going to give you some highlights uh, and just give you a little bit of the, the picture of what was happening behind the scenes. This episode was directed by David Carson. He had already directed The Enemy, and he will come back for a feature film. So we will uh, see his work again. Um, and it was written by God Only Knows. Uh, well, that, that's not totally true. Um, but the backstory to this episode is very well documented. And I would recommend that anyone who wants to know more pick up Eric Stilwell's book, The Making of Yesterday's Enterprise. So let me tell you about Eric. Eric Stilwell is a dyed-in-the-wool Star Trek fan from the time that he was but a little boy. And uh, he kind of worked his way up in entertainment. He became a PA, production assistant, on the first couple of seasons of The Next Generation. Generation. And uh, he then became a script coordinator under Michael Pillar's tutelage. Um, again, at a time when there had been introduced this open submission policy to the show. And then a funny thing happened. He, Eric Stilwell, and writer Trent Canino were both working independently on time travel spec scripts at the same time. So Michael Pillar suggested that Eric and Trent combine their scripts. So what do you end up with when you have combined scripts with time travel? Well, there were old enterprises, new enterprises. There was Tasha. There was a Guardian of Forever. There was Sarek. What? Yes, Sarek. <laughs> <laughs> but that did not go very well with the higher-ups. And when I say the higher-ups, I mean Gene Roddenberry in particular. So no Sarek in this episode. Maybe, just maybe, he will show up sometime later. So 
once the storyline was finally narrowed down, what elements would be in the script and what elements were to be left out, that outline was handed over to the big guns to flesh it out. And when I say the big guns, I mean everybody in the writer's staff that we've kind of gotten to know about over the last several months. Um, Ira Stephen Bear brought this writing staff in over the Thanksgiving holidays. Nobody was very happy about that. Um, but production had to be moved up to accommodate Whoopi Goldberg and Denise Crosby's schedules. Wait a minute. So, Denise yeah. Crosby is in this episode? Oh, spoiler. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So Ira had this vision in his mind of Robert Taylor at the end of the movie Batan uh, shooting a machine gun through a cloud of smoke at an enemy that was going to wipe out him and the rest of his army. Um, and Ira told the writing staff, we're going to kill them all about the Enterprise crew. And um, this kind of got everybody pumped up, even though they had to work over a holiday. Um, they did get to kill Riker, but uh, scenes where they would have killed Data and Wesley ultimately had to get cut. Um, this was a very tough episode to write by everybody's account. So really the whole staff, again, gets credit here, um, even though the story is credited to Eric Stilwell and Trent Ganino. Um, but every last detail of a time travel episode has to be thoroughly worked out to avoid plot holes. And uh, Rick Berman says that they spent more time on this script than any others up to that point on the show. All right, so let's talk a little bit about effects. Um, Greg Jean built the Enterprise C from a design by Rick Sternbach. Um, now, there had already kind of been an Enterprise-C designed by Andy Probert, and we can see it on the wall of the Enterprise conference room and in a painting that Probert did, uh, but they weren't 100% sure what it was or what it was for, so Rick Sternbach set about to do a new design that would be right in between an Excelsior-class ship and the Enterprise-D, which honestly is what Andy Probert had done. He sort of sat down with the two... Uh, ship designs and tried to connect the dots to see what would be in the middle. Um, the model cost about $10,000 to make, and they actually used leftover fireworks to distress <laughs> the hull. So here's this $10,000 great machine <laughs> model, and then they're just setting up fireworks next to it to blow it off no. <laughs> to make it look a little distressed. Probably a little black cat, not like an M80 or anything. Uh, well, no, but it, it's, you know. Are the M80s, is that what they're called? Is that what the big, like, you know, yeah, those the ones the big, that, the blow up the toilet and things like that? Right. <laughs> yeah, they didn't do that. Certainly not inside it. Yeah. But one of the things they did, though, and, and Rick Sternbach was very smart about this. Now, they actually had more budget for this show. Um, this was going to air during uh, Sweeps Week in mm. February of 1990. So they had a bit more budget to play with. And, and they were really kind of hitting their stride in terms of, you know, set design and, and model work and special effects. Um, but Rick very wisely submitted a model design for Greg Jean that would eliminate some of the, the very sinewy lines that the Enterprise D had and that Andy Probert's original Enterprise C had in order to make it easier to model. Um, so instead of having these long, curvy lines, he built the secondary hull where it was just regular, uh, uh, easy-to-model circles that he could build up from that instead of having to do a lot of fancy, customized modeling. Um, the other thing that we see in this episode 
extensive redressing of existing sets, bringing in the movie-era color scheme for the Enterprise C, that thanks to Mike Okuda, um, even bringing in the costuming, changing the shape and configuration of the Enterprise D bridge, changing the lighting, moving all of that kind of lower angles to make things more menacing. Um, so that was a, a huge, huge rebuild of everything to make it look like that. Um, and let's talk about the guest stars here. We'll focus on two big ones here, Christopher McDonald as Lieutenant Castillo and Trisha O'Neill as Captain Garrett. Now, McDonald is from Romulus. Uh, not a joke. Romulus, New York is where he's from. And he pops up in TV roles, voice acting and feature films. Uh, interestingly, he played Ward Cleaver in the 1997 Leave it to Beaver movie. Uh, he was Daryl in Thelma and Louise. And he was Jack Barry in Quiz Show. Very cool movie. And he was also Shooter McGavin in Happy Gilmore. Everybody keeps talking about Shooter McGavin. Yeah, everybody. I know, right? <laughs> Jack Barry is my favorite role of his, I think. I love I, I love him. Like yeah. when I see him in something, I'll I'll stop. Yeah. And see what it is. And and I thought he was great in Thelma and Louise, although you can watch that movie and not even realize it's him right. because it's so out of character for him because he's usually fairly dashing. I mean, he's dashing in this, he's dashing as Jack Barry. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, comically dashing in Happy Gilmore. Mm-hmm. He's just reprehensible in Thelma and Louise, and yet, okay. I mean, just a fantastic, fantastic performance, even though he's not on screen for much time. Yeah. Uh, Jack Barry and Quiz Show. I Man. Yeah. 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 So good. I, I want to watch that movie again. Yeah, me too. Almost all the time, though. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's old television. It's Robert Redford directing. It's Rafe yeah. Fiennes before he was like, you know, Rafe Fiennes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was just after... I want to say he went from Schindler's List to Quiz Show and had to drop something like 30 or 40 pounds inside of three months because he was he was like, you know, he was this angular sort of whatever. I mean, it it was Ray Fiennes back in the day. It's, you know, John Turturro. John Turturro. Oh, that's right. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. And um, and yeah. Anyway. And that, ladies and gentlemen, on our (laughs) Quiz Show podcast, (laughs) which is coming up in 2063. Right. Uh, and then Trisha O'Neill, who plays Captain Garrett here, she started out as a model who moved on to commercials and eventually a long line of TV guest spots. And like many other Star Trek actors, if they like you, they bring you back. So O'Neill comes back for one more Next Gen episode and then again for Deep Space Nine. She also appears in one of the biggest movies of all time, Titanic, as woman. Now, that is a credited role. and She is recognizable getting into a lifeboat. So we'll assume that she made it. And, um, you know, a a guest star who's a guest star, but not really a guest star because we already know the character is Tasha Yar. And, of course, that is Denise Crosby's return to the show here. And and it kind of dispels some of the rumors about Denise Crosby having left on bad terms or anything like that. Um, She speaks only very fondly of getting to come back to do this. And, in fact, she ran into Eric Stilwell at a convention in 1989 and said, hey, do something where Tasha comes back. (laughs) So he did, (laughs) you know. Um, So it was very cool. And and, 
uh, it, it seems that everybody behind the scenes was very glad to have her back for that. And one of the other things that she talks about is her chemistry with co-star Christopher McDonald, that they just got along great and to crack each other on set many times and that uh, she is chagrined that uh, because they were cracking up and goofing off so much, they actually uh, messed up one of Patrick Stewart's scenes, something that uh, probably any actor would feel bad about doing. And finally, uh, we have a fun discovered document that ties into uh, this week's show. And it's kind of, you know, it's not a, a huge thing like a, like a script note or something like that. But it's kind of a fun thing that you don't really think about. It is an invitation from Eric Stilwell to view the episode. So when the episode was ready to come out, he wanted people to watch it. So he sent out this invitation, wanted people to check out his handiwork. And uh, this invitation comes to us courtesy of our friend, Dr. Trek himself, Larry Nemechek. It is Shooter McGavin as you have never seen him before. Poised and making sense. Let us pay a visit to yesterday's Enterprise. Kiner and Worf are sitting in Tenford, sipping a little prune juice and talking over Worf's aloneness. There's not a woman on the Enterprise that he wouldn't hurt, in his estimation, and he's fine by himself. The conversation is cut short when some sort of wormholeish, anomalous something opens up right near the Enterprise, and Worf is called to the bridge. Data says the thing that's there is there, but isn't. It's like a time displacement, but not... No boundaries, no... Yeah, it's weird. Just then a ship sails through the anomaly, and we return to a very different Enterprise. Darker, more harsh. The uniforms are largely the same, though a bit more militaristic. Captain Picard asks Lieutenant Tasha Yar for information on the newly arrived ship, though she can't provide any just yet. Back in 10 Ford, Guinan senses that something's not right, that things have changed. On the bridge, Yar is finally able to make out the other ship's registry, NCC-1701C, USS Enterprise. Act 1. Military log, combat date, numbers, 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 this really is different. Data says the ship across the way really does seem to be the Enterprise-C, presumed destroyed just over 22 years ago near a Klingon outpost. Also, the anomaly through which it came is unstable, and could collapse at any time. Lieutenant Yar picks up life signs aboard the ship, and Commander Riker wants to send in help. Captain Picard holds him off, though. If that really is a ship from our past, screwing around with it could affect our present and future. The theoretical turns practical almost immediately as the Enterprise-C sends out a distress call. They need assistance after being attacked by some Romulans. Picard calls over. He's sending help. He tells Riker to reveal as little to the other crew as possible including when they are. Message from Starfleet, Klingon battlecruisers have been spotted in the vicinity. Enterprise-D goes to battle alert. Aboard the Enterprise-C, it's a wreck. Captain Garrett is alive. She wants information, but she's really in no shape to argue. They'll take care of her, and that's all she needs to know. Geordi sets to work fixing the Enterprise-C. From out of the wreckage of the bridge crawls Lieutenant Castillo, helmsman. Riker calls over to Picard. He thinks they can save the Enterprise-C, which would be good. Starfleet could certainly use another ship. There is the matter of those Klingon battlecruisers, though. Picard says if they can't make the Enterprise-C space-worthy in nine hours, they'll have to evacuate survivors and blow it out of the sky. 
Just then Guinan comes onto the bridge. She needs a word with Captain Picard. This is all wrong, she says. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Act 2. Guinan can't really explain what's wrong. It's just that nothing is right. Picard says nothing has changed. Guinan says she knows that, and yet it's not right. The bridge is different. Picard is different. Where are the families? Where are the children? Picard thinks that sounds crazy. We're at war. Guinan says they're not supposed to be. This is not a ship of war. It's a ship of peace. To her, this all boils down to one thing. That ship from the past is not supposed to be here. It's got to go back. In sickbay, Captain Garrett is on the mend. She says her ship was answering a distress signal from the Klingon outpost Narendra 3. Surely Picard's ship heard it. Except it didn't. Now she's got some questions. They basically boil down to, when are we? Picard tells her she's on the Enterprise D, 22 years into her own future. She wants to tell her crew that Picard says maybe they shouldn't, since if they go back to the past with knowledge of the future, things could get messy. Garrett's not thinking about going back, though. They barely got away with their lives. If they go back to the battle, they'll be destroyed. We hear a bit more about the fight that she and the Enterprise C escaped. The Klingon outpost was under attack by some Romulans. Garrett was offering the Klingons assistance. Picard says that seems to have failed, and too bad. Had a Federation ship succeeded in helping the Klingons, 20 years of war might have been averted. Apparently, the decision to tell the crew won out because aboard the Enterprise-C, Lieutenant Castillo is borderline freaking out. He's talking it over with Yar, who's all business, getting the Enterprise-C back in fighting form. She does tell him the future might suck. As far as he's concerned, the war with the Klingons has been costly. The Federation has lost half of Starfleet to the Klingons. Castillo says they were negotiating a peace treaty with the Klingons in his time. Way to go. Picard is talking over the anomaly with Data. While time is passing here, the other side of the anomaly is apparently sort of... static? If the Enterprise-C were to go back through, it would arrive at practically the same moment it left, in the middle of the battle with the Romulans, which means it would be destroyed. Act 3. Castillo and Yar are really hitting it off. They go to sickbay on the 1701D to talk to Captain Garrett, who decides that she has laid around long enough... After a short spar with Dr. Crusher, she heads back to her ship. Guinan and Picard square off again. Everything Picard knows tells him the Enterprise-C should stay. Everything that is except for Guinan. None of what's happening now is supposed to be happening. Seriously, Picard, they have to go back. In 10 Ford, Castillo and Yar are chatting. Which weirds Guinan out. Not the fact that they're talking, there's just... Something... Tasha sees it, though Guinan says there's nothing wrong. Castillo and Yar get a little more... chummy, let's say, when senior officers are called to Picard's ready room. There, he lays out the Guinan proposal. Send the Enterprise-C and its crew back to their dome. Senior staff makes sensible arguments against the idea, all of which Picard overrules. A ship from the past came to the present. That could have altered things. The Enterprise-C is going back. Riker must protest. Picard is going to ask over 100 people to die a meaningless death. Though Data disagrees. If the Enterprise-C dies defending a Klingon outpost, it would be seen as meaningful, honorable by the Klingons. Their sacrifice could avert this war. And the timeline, but whatever. 
Aboard the Enterprise-C, Picard tells Garrett that their ship needs to go back to the anomaly. She says she's on the fence. Some of her people want to go back, though all understand how helpful another ship could be in the war against the Klingons. Turns out it wouldn't be helpful at all. Picard tells Garrett that the Federation is mere months away from surrendering to the Klingons. Enterprise-C returning to its own time may be the only chance for the survival of the Federation. Captain Garrett makes the announcement, Tell the crew we're going back. Castillo and Yar say a poignant goodbye, or we're about to, when the Enterprise-C is attacked. Remember those Klingon ships? Yeah, one of them is here. It's attacking. No, wait a minute, I'm sorry. It attacked. It's cloaked now. And it's killed Captain Garrett. Act 4. Castillo says he's prepared to take the Enterprise-C back in time. Riker's against it, but blah, blah, blah. The anomaly is looking less stable than before. Castillo says he's ready to go, or can be in a few hours. Picard says, make it so. And Castillo and Yar say a poignant goodbye. Again. This time they kiss, though, which has been on the way the whole episode. From the transporter room, Tasha goes to see Guinan. What happens to me in the alternate timeline? Guinan says she doesn't know. But she's not supposed to know Tasha. Tasha is supposed to be dead. Victim of an empty death. A death without purpose. From there, Tasha goes to see the captain. She'd like a transfer to the Enterprise-C, please. She gets that we all have to die, but she doesn't want her death to be empty or meaningless. I've always known the risks of wearing a Starfleet uniform. If I'm to die in one, I'd like my death to count for something. And Picard grants her request for transfer. Aboard the Enterprise-C, Castillo is not happy. He does not want her to die, which she will if she goes back with them. But she argues, and he gives in, and we go to break. Act 5. Pew, pew! Pew, pew, pew! That really does sum up most of Act 5. The Enterprise-C is headed back to the anomaly. The Klingons attack again. The Enterprise-D runs interference. While they take out one of the three Klingon ships, they're well on their way to being destroyed. There's a coolant leak. A warp core breach is imminent. Riker's dead. The bridge is on fire. All hope is lost. Until the Enterprise-C sails back through the anomaly. And we're back on our well-lit bridge, complete with a Klingon security officer. He says it looked like there was a ship near the anomaly for a second, but it disappeared. Huh. Well, all's well. They'll head off to their next thing. Though, this is odd. Guinan calls the bridge. Is everything all right up there? Assured that all is well, she goes back to a drink with Geordi and asks him to tell her about Tasha Yar. The end. Man, I always loved it so much when Lieutenant Castillo would send Crockett and Tubbs on their next mission, and they'd hop in the Ferrari. Uh, See, I'm, just, I'm guessing uh, you're making a Miami Vice joke. Lieutenant Castillo, that was Edward James Olmos' character. I, I seriously watched one episode of Miami Vice. Oh, so good. I can even tell you which episode it was. Really? Nah, I'm not going to bother, though. We'll save that for our <laughs> Miami Vice podcast, which is after the Quiz Show podcast, which is after the Moonlighting podcast, which is after the Cold Chat podcast, which is after all of these. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
So this is the part of the show where we do the kind of like lighthearted, you know, immediate reactions to what we've just seen. Mm-hmm. And and I kind of feel like I'm doing what our listeners are doing during this episode when they watched it, hopefully watched it, and just sort of like playing excited tour guide. Like, oh, look, they changed the uniforms there. And then they and they changed the captain's log to military log. And the chair is different. And, and the ship has more people on it. I mean, it's just every little detail. And I want to say to our listeners – yeah, we're totally on the same page with you, <laughs> you know, and all those little details are great. So we, we won't waste time cataloging them here. Well, except I feel like there are a couple that we do have to do. OK, go ahead. Like the obvious one is Worf's not on the Enterprise. Makes nope. sense. I mean, because yeah. we're at war with the Klingons and who even knows if he would have survived, you know, what happened at Kittimer. I mean, because it's well, I guess he would have survived because things didn't really change until 22 years ago. Well, yeah. And that's so like Worf- a really long time after Kittimer. Um, well, after the Kittimer Accord, but remember, Worf was killed. Worf's parents were killed at Kittimer. Yeah. Not, yeah. I, don't, I think it was the same time. It wasn't like that week. Right, right. right. Yeah. I don't think. And if people don't know what week we're talking about, well, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. must have just started listening. Um, yeah. What I found interesting, actually, there's also no ship's counselor, or mm-hmm. we assume there's no ship's counselor. There's no place for a ship's counselor on the bridge. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Um and I wasn't even sure. I thought, wow, so do they just give Marina like the week off for this one? But no, she's actually there. And I believe she's there in the first shot. And I know she's there at the end. And the last, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's very obvious that that's changed. And the other thing was Wesley, um, a 17-year-old or so. I don't know if he's 17 or 18 at this point, but he's young. Mm-hmm. Um, is a fully commissioned uh, Starfleet. He's active. He's not an yeah. acting ensign or, or he's not the doctor's kid. He is a uniformed member of this military organization. Uh, which, which I mean, there are little things. I mean, yeah, military log is very obvious, and combat date is very obvious. Although it sounded right. like the combat date was about the same as the star date would have been, even though combat only started 22 years ago. But okay. <laughs> um, yeah, right, right. It's darker, and they've got, like, more militaristic whatever. But I, I like even the more subtle things. Like, yeah, no, we don't have time for a counselor. And and, yeah, and, yeah. and and this war is going so bad that, yeah, well, we might have had like an intern program back in the day. <laughs> if you're if you're you know tall enough to ride this ride, you yeah. know, slap a gun in his hand because because uh, we're fighting. Well, yeah, because Picard is outraged at the idea that there would be kids on board the ship, as Guinan points out to him. Yeah. And um, but you've got Wesley there. But this 17 year old Wesley is not a kid. So like they're recruiting them young. Yes. Because because yeah. the war is going poorly, and we don't even realize how poorly until yeah, until later when he actually says it. But I mean, the fact that Wesley is uniformed and sitting there driving a starship, I mean, <laughs> right, it is an right. indication that things aren't going great. Yeah, um, I, I was very curious as to you know in that uh, well, not really an alternate timeline because it is the original timeline, the the only timeline with the Enterprise. C is in its original firefight and then leaves. Um, so that bridge is made out of incredibly flammable materials. <laughs> just, just things are burnt because they beam over the first time and it's just everything's on fire. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, you could say the same though. For I, th- I think we're going to have to allow for a little artistic license here because oh, sh- um, the same goes for the one seven zero one D. Our mm-hmm. last shot of Picard is shot through fire. And I don't mean like sparks or, you know, smoke. I mean, 
Yeah. We're roasting marshmallows. I mean, it's 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 a full-on <laughs> fire that's happening yeah. there. Um, you can picture the PA just at a camera range, like lighting that thing. Like, okay, we're rolling. <laughs> and he jumps over the thing, and it's very dramatic. Okay, now bring the flame bar up into camera range. Exactly. Good. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's very fiery. Well, there's a lot of carpet. But you'd think <laughs> that it would be the non-flammable kind. I don't think there's carpet on the control panel, though, which is what was on fire. <laughs> well, no, I don't, I don't think so. But okay. There's carpet all over the bridge. Yeah. And uh, I, I like how we get very earnest discussions about not polluting the timeline, but really it's the worst kept secret anywhere. What? About polluting the timeline. It's like as soon as the Enterprise C shows up, they're like, oh, we don't say anything, don't do anything. And then pretty much three minutes later, it was like, oh, yeah, so you're from the past, we're from the future, and here's how this is going to go down. Well, he did just tell the captain, but I guess, yeah, I actually mentioned that in the recap, and I was like, yeah, I guess I guess that argument was short. Yeah. Because suddenly Shooter yeah. McGavin's like, everybody I know is dead. <laughs> Tosh is like, it's only been 22 years, dude. Maybe everybody's not dead. Of course, we are fighting a terrible war. It's quite possible that everybody is dead. Heck, they might have just died yesterday. You may have just yeah. missed them. Yeah, um, true. Yeah. It's weird because Picard is the same Picard he always is of like, you know, uh, they were already dead, but until you brought them back to life, why didn't you just leave them dead? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. He's like, oh, uh-huh. let's not pollute the timeline. We can't do that. Well, unless somebody asks me nicely. Yeah, right, right. When Tasha's like, I want to go to the other ship, he's like, no, that's nuts. And she's like, yeah, but I really want to. Well, okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of, uh, oh, okay, sure. It's a great scene. It's a great dramatic scene. And, um, I mean, we just might as well say that we have a a well-written Tasha Yar here. We do. We have a very well-written Tasha Yar. And I got to say, she is not the only character in this episode that makes a return appearance. Well, she's the only one who makes a return appearance. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, shout out to Dr. Silar. Yes. Yeah, they yes. call her at one point. Because yeah. apparently, there were like a thousand people on the 1701D that we normally watch, right? right. But apparently, you only need one doctor for that. Maybe one and a half. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> right. when there are 6,000 people, well, we need Dr. Crusher and Dr. Silar. Yeah. Who was apparently not in sickbay, but was being called to sickbay. So, it was neat to hear her name again, though. Right. Um, it is kind of heartbreaking to hear Captain Picard describe the failure of the Federation to Garrett. I, I, I love how that scene, because we've, we've had a lot of range out of Picard in this episode. I love him, you know, kind of freaking out at Guinan. Yeah. But then you have something that is so serious, so important like that, and they underplay everything. It's a great choice, actor, director, how, however that decision came about. But it's a terrifically played moment, and um, it, it, it really... It really paints a picture of how very different this Star Trek is from, you know, in quotes, real Star Trek, our timeline Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, so a, a very nicely played scene. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's um, another one of those things, too, where it, it's almost getting silly to talk about what a great actor um, Patrick Stewart is. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, he was amazing. So That's yeah. I mean, we're yeah. getting those so consistently now. I'm not yeah. saying so let's not do it anymore. It's just. I mean, it's if we start to sound fanboyish after a while, <laughs> no, he really just is an amazing actor. Now, I mentioned earlier the uh, the poor flame retardant properties of the Enterprise. Yeah. Another thing that I have to point out is I love 
how Riker dies at the end, and then all the rocks that make up the Enterprise bridge fall all around him because that is a lot of masonry on that <laughs> ship. And I kept thinking, like, the corridors must be cobblestone. Yeah. And, and they just, every time they get hit with something, like, they have to call up this crew of, you know, guys with, like, spatulas and concrete, and they're coming in to just, you know, it put re- the bricks back, put the rocks back. It reminded me of all the dust that was falling in Balance of Terror. That was just full on dirt. That was like somebody put <laughs> potting soil in the top of that Romulan ship. See, I felt like it was adobe or something like that. You know, <laughs> like, the, like whatever the plaster that they used to, like you know, do the roof. It, it was coming down like that. It reminded me of that a bit. Yeah, right. the, the rocks were kind of a weird, uh, were kind of a weird choice. Although maybe it was a uh, oh the 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 very foundation, the brickwork, the 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 the, the stony uh, parts that make up the Enterprise are crumbling. <laughs> But but literally, well, yeah, but literally, makes the enterprise <laughs> like we built this thing in space. It's space stage materials, but underneath that, it's just a layer of rock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I have to mention this blooper because I feel like if I don't, uh, three hundred people will write in about it. Okay. At the very end, that last scene with Guinan and Jordy sitting at uh, ten forward, and she says, "Tell or he says, tell me. No, I'm sorry, she says, tell me about Tasha Yar." <laughs> Did you notice what was going on with his uniform? Uh, was it like three sizes too big? Well, there's that. Okay. That's about <laughs> no. the only thing I noticed because you said this thing about the blooper and I'm like, uh, okay, I'll go back and watch again. Even though I already watched it a few times at that point and it, it, it was sort of like a kid wearing his dad's uniform it felt like, but otherwise it's no. Little, it's a little big on him. It is the military timeline Enterprise uniform that he's wearing. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not his back to normal. We're a scientific exploratory vessel. He's wearing the same uniform he's been wearing in the uh, Battle Weary Enterprise. Did the Enterprise C have a hollow deck? Did it have a 10 forward? I wish we had had more time to look around. Watching and rewatching this episode, I was sort of struck. Um, well, I was actually sort of stuck with the whole huh. thing with Worf at the beginning of the episode. Um, it's cute and it's useless, <laughs> except for a couple of things. Okay. Um, first of all, Worf is a comfortable member of this crew, and a, he's a member of the crew that we are comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's going to be gone for most of the episode. Mm-hmm. If he's alive anywhere, he's our enemy at this point. Um, and so it's interesting to sort of like, you know, remind people of that it's like oh i love that guy oh wow we're fighting this guy oh yeah we were sort of like that weren't we with them also prune juice is not a warrior's drink unless a warrior says so (laughs) (laughs) um which i did find kind of amusing as well um as for his aloneness his sort of displacement i mean i guess he could kind of parallel the enterprise c and i guess he really really does parallel the um suddenly alive tasha yar uh, she doesn't belong there, but she is there. Um, see also Worf, in a mm. way. I, I, I don't think it's a big deal. I don't think it's an important deal. But I was trying to figure out what that part was. Because you could easily not have it in the episode and be fine. It's a great It's a great scene, though. I mean, it's a great... Yeah. We did the whole... I guess it was when we were uh, with the Edo... Um, yeah. when Riker was like, why don't you, you know, enjoy yourself? And, and Riker's <laughs> like, there's nobody here. Or, I mean, excuse me. Worf is like, there's nobody here. I wouldn't break. 
Yeah. And and so we're having that conversation again, but in a more subtle, more fun, more nuanced kind of way. I also like the fact that Guinan's like, oh no, there there are a couple of human women on this ship who would who would find you quaint. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's a fun conversation. Um, I don't know that there is a point to it unless it is to sort of you know set up you know everything that we know is not what we actually know for this episode. But I, I think there's a couple of reasons for it. I mean, why not inject? one moment of levity in an episode where there is no levity mm-hmm. at all. Everything is incredibly high drama in this episode. So, you know, we, we kind of ease the audience into it by saying, oh, look, here's these characters that you know and you like, and now we're just going to pull the rug out from under all of that yeah. and, and take you along for this ride. But um, it is interesting. In preparing for this episode i went back and rewatched a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that's available because as i kind of indicated in the trivia section when you have a popular episode you also just have a ton of behind the scenes data so there's so much of it out there but one of the things that um writers would discuss about michael pillar is that he said that he would have these little moments that they would call pillar filler and it was just like, okay, we're running short. We need to throw in a scene. So Michael Piller would usually write a scene to just drop it in. And that would stretch the show enough so that they would hit their timing goal, right? But everybody said the same thing, which is that it, it definitely was not filler. It was stuff that was rooted in character mm-hmm. and was still really entertaining to watch, you know, and and usually expanded upon what we knew about those characters. So I like we have a little bit of a callback, like you mentioned about the Edo. I was also thinking about, um, you know, uh, uh, the emissary, where we get another little hint of Klingon sexuality by introducing Worf's mate. Um, and I like, you know, I've said before that I've never been a huge, huge Klingon aficionado, mm-hmm. but I really like every little hint of Worf that we've gotten as this kind of damaged character, this guy who is so uncomfortable with where he is, but everything that he knows about how to present himself is this like hardline fundamentalist, right versus wrong, honor or nothing, Klingon warrior. So he's got to put on this face constantly, which is why I love that you brought up the thing about the prune juice. It's just, it's not a warrior's drink, but if he says it is, then it is. Right. <laughs> We're just completely fooling him and somebody's going to catch up to him about uh, what Guinan has just pulled, you know? So yeah, it, it's a great moment. It, it doesn't fit, but I don't know, for some reason it kind of does. It doesn't not fit. I mean, yeah, th- yeah, you know, yeah. that's, I mean, it, it does give us, it's more noticeable when I mean obviously it's noticeable when Worf isn't there because suddenly Tasha is who we haven't seen since you know sure. towards the end of season one, right. but I mean it makes his absence that much more uh, palpable, yeah, or that much more real. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about time travel and how it's handled here and in Star Trek because this isn't Marty McFly time travel where you have physical clues. Nobody pulls out a picture and there's a fading Tasha Yar, you know, (laughs) (laughs) no, look for real. You're supposed to not be here, you know? Um, And it's also not parallel universe time travel where another storyline is playing out somewhere else. This is our crew, our ship in one place in one story and it changes instantly and without their knowledge as soon as the past is tinkered with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I thought of um, 
City on the Edge of Forever. Again, it's like it, the, there is one continuous timeline, and if one thing changes, that changes everything that comes after it, and, and that's that. And I thought the difficult thing here is that history has been different in this episode for 22 years. So we have a we have this new galaxy class ship. You know, it was new when we started and encounter at Farpoint, mm-hmm. and we have all the same people and the same personalities for the most part. And that's kind of the part that's hard to swallow, but it's still cool. I mean, I, I guess you you have to have that because you have to give the audience something to remember. It's like no, you you still have to have Riker there, even though 22 years ago he could have had a totally different timeline of his own when all of this changed and mm-hmm. gone off to join the crew of another ship. Well, he's the most different, it seems to me. I mean, it actually would have been interesting to see, it, and, and this is not something you'll hear many people say very often, mm-hmm. would have been interesting to see uh, more Wesley in this yeah. episode oh, because he was he's under 22. I mean, yeah. he grew up in the, in, in the post-whatever Narendra 3 world right where suddenly the klingons felt slighted apparently by the federation because there was this ship there that suddenly wasn't there so obviously they turned tail and ran and so that led to war and can we talk by the way about the romulans plan in this because the romulans came and attacked narendra three and and then apparently once the klingons i mean the klingons were they was like oh that's just so romulan we're not going to worry about that we're going to kill the federation because they ran away from us and the Romulans have to be licking their lips over on the side going, okay, you know, whoever's left is going to be so weak that we basically get <laughs> we, right. we get it all when it's done. Right. Riker strikes me as very different in this episode. Yeah. He's not really willing to listen to Picard. He will because it's his duty and it's his place in, in, the, uh, in the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. But he, I mean, like, you know, usually if Riker has an idea and Picard has another idea, Riker gets this almost like appreciative look on his face. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, well, yes, my captain is very smart, and I see what he's doing now. Or, well, I don't see what he's doing, but he's okay. I feel like this whole time in this episode, Riker was just like, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> so, yeah. I mean, yeah. otherwise, everybody would be about the same. Uh, Wesley would have been an interesting one to sort of explore a bit more, though, because he, you know, he grew up in this. He He grew up during the war. Well, yeah, and we have to assume that Jack Crusher is still dead and maybe... Jean-Luc Picard is the guy who delivered that terrible news and that body to the Crusher family. Yeah. So, but that all happened after Narendra three. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, very interesting stuff. Um, I did think at one point, you know, really anyone with a career in Starfleet at this point should be well aware of temporal anomalies and the danger of time travel and everything. And uh, honestly, they just show up and they, they're cool with it. (laughs) You know, Enterprise C shows up and they go, Oh, 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 sorry, that happened again. Sorry, we will be on our way back to where we belong. Pretend like we're not here. <laughs> you know? <laughs> because, I mean, you really, you just go back to Kirk. You go back to tomorrow's yesterday. You go back to the uh, mission log report on uh, City Edge of Forever, um, the whales, you know, just really everything. They should just know. That should be, that should be in the second year at Starfleet. First year, you learn to eat everything when you get to a planet (laughs) second year should be honestly just do not mess with the timeline and if you end up where you're not supposed to be leave if you see a ship that looks like yours from a different time it is is. don't worry about it just get out eyes down head forward 
Do not hail them. Head down, eyes forward, whichever one. <laughs> just, just keep doing what you're doing and don't worry. Yeah. So the morality of this episode is interesting. And we, we've had this kind of academic moral conundrum before. You're at a railroad switch and you can send the train to kill five people or one person. Which do you choose? And what if the one person is your mother, your father, your spouse, or best friend? How does that change the equation? How does that change the moral decision? Now, we won't find ourselves having to decide if we have to send back a starship full of people to meet their doom. Although, if you do find yourself in that position, please let me know. Very (laughs) curious how that works out. Um, But the real-life parallel that's difficult to grapple with is whether there is such a thing as acceptable casualties. You know, in this parallel or alternate timeline, the, the Federation is at war. And what would seem completely unthinkable otherwise is now real. So Picard and Garrett and everyone else is having to decide if it is acceptable to sacrifice the pawns, for lack of a better description of, of what they become, if it means preserving the the what? The, the more important or the greater number or the more real timeline at this point. And Picard poses the right question to Guinan, you know, for her going on her gut. I love him exploding. Not good enough. Well, except um, it is. It is because we know <laughs> that she's right. Right. Picard has nothing to go on other than just, I'm your friend and I wouldn't lie to you. Well, except he still goes with it. I mean, we've got, we've got that whole, you know, we, we have not known anything. We still really don't know much about their history, but we're being constantly told by Guinan when it's important. Look, we have this history, you know? And so, yeah. I mean, you say, you say that he says to her that her gut isn't good enough, except it is. Well, here's the thing. I, I don't think it is. I, I think, you know, look, he's asking her for the same thing that he was asking Jarek. Convince me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but, but honestly, even if you get past that concern, it's just a matter of asking, do these people belong where they are? And the short and correct answer is always no. You know, this is the timeline of Picard that exists 22 years in the future of when these people showed up. So clearly these people do not belong there. Now, the question is, is it ethical or moral or right to send them back when you know that they will die almost immediately? Although... Can you screw with things and give them better weapons, give them better tactical, which it seems they're doing just by putting Tasha on that ship and just by helping them to repair the damage that's already been done. You're giving them a huge advantage Hmm. over what they left. So they are screwing with their own timeline. I don't know. You and I were joking off mic about how incredibly long it took the Enterprise C to get back through the wormhole. (laughs) Just forever. I mean, that's that's how badly damaged this ship is. So I don't know. I mean, like, because they talked about it in the ready room. They're like, we can't send them back. We send them back to their doom. And Jordy says, ooh, unless we give them all kinds of great weapons. Picard's like, no, we can't give them all kinds of great weapons. They're basically, I mean, Tasha is basically a cut man at this point. I mean, she's basically just putting them back together enough to get back in the fight where they will be knocked out. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that it's fair to say that she's giving them any sort of tactical advantage. What I've been trying to think about in this, I mean, well, I, 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 I'm sorry. I would just say that her knowledge is a tactical advantage. I mean, she tells Castillo, nobody on this ship knows tactical better than I do. Right. Because she she has training 
that they have not even hit yet. <laughs> right, but, <laughs> you know? but all she tell I mean, what she tells Picard is, look, maybe I'm going to give them seconds, maybe even just minutes, but those could be the minutes that divert the that avert the war. I mean, yeah. so yeah. really, what I mean, the most she might do is swoop around in such a way that the Klingons will definitely see that the that the Federation was there trying to help. Right. right. I mean, she's not she's not going to suddenly you know capture the Romulan Empire. No, of course. In doing course. this. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was trying to think of and I, and I can't because your question is an interesting one and it's uh, he is sending these people to their death. Yeah. Maybe to save other people, maybe not. I mean, that's the thing. We don't know what happens 22 years later. And there's sort of a tidy little thing that's done here, right? I mean, uh, we assume that this darker timeline is going to wink out of existence. Mm-hmm. If if they succeed or if the Klingons see it, but that that doesn't necessarily happen. I mean, th- I mean, this timeline exists and this timeline will continue to exist. So the good news is we're never gonna have to worry about it because it's obvious the Enterprise is about to blow up. There are two Klingon warbirds firing on them and they're about to have a warp core breach. So, yeah. I mean, so we're never going to have to worry about darker timeline Picard ever again, ever. <laughs> He's right. going to die one of five ways in the next 30 seconds. It's just a matter of which one's going to get to him first, right? Yeah. I, I keep trying to think. Of, so, like, what is the situation where we would do this? I mean, you send a soldier behind enemy lines to retrieve a guy, and there's always a chance he's not going to come out. But it's very rare that we send somebody into a situation where we know they're going to die. My immediate thought was, um, well... There are the uh, kamikaze pilots in World War II. And then I thought, not the best example, (laughs) because they're not trying to save anybody. They're trying to kill a bunch of people. So let's leave them off the table. Sadly, the only one that I can think of is is a fiction, although certainly this would be something that one assumes could happen in real life as well. It was in the West Wing. It was in the West Wing when they had the uh, when they had the uh, when they had the meltdown at the um, at the nuclear plant Mm -hmm. and they sent a couple of guys in who knew they were not coming out. They knew that to save everybody, they were going to have to. They were going to have to give up their lives. And so, that, might, might you be saying that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? I guess. You, well, I guess. Wow, it didn't even occur to me that there was a Star Trek example, wasn't there? <laughs> <laughs> Aside from the Star Trek example that we're watching, yeah. I mean, I guess yes. Although, what's weird is in those situations, you know, Spock knew that if he went in, he would be able to save the Enterprise. Uh, the yeah. guys on the West Wing knew that if they went in, they would be able to stop, you know, a, a much worse release of radioactive um, ness that couldn't engulf the entire West Coast. Uh, these guys are going back again on Guinan's hunch. But, I mean, it, it, the one thing it does do is it does speak to Picard's level of desperation at this point and the Federation's level of desperation at this point. That it's like, yeah, this this may not work, but, man, nothing else is going to, so may as well. Well, you know, to me, the the other side of the, the question here, because I, I brought up the thing about, um, you know, acceptable loss, you mm-hmm. know, is the, if you look at this as a chessboard, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to sacrifice these pawns because hopefully it'll give me a strategic advantage in in winning by the end of the game, you know, by protecting the more important, uh, the, the, the higher value targets, you know. Right. Um, so that's part of it, but then you know the the other part of the question here becomes for Picard in the here and now, even if it's this bizarre alternate timeline, um, what is the obligation to protect the people around him? You, you know, we've kind of seen this before with um, 
Well, with Dr. Crusher, you know, Dr. Crusher will just straight up go try to save somebody who Picard will say, no, why didn't you let them die? Mm-hmm. That's what you're supposed to do because we are messing things up by protecting these people. And her attitude is, you know, the, the first do no harm. I'm a doctor. I'm here to help. So whoever, whatever the situation may be, I'm here to help them. Um, granted, in this very, you know, concept-heavy science fiction environment where we say, okay, well, we can send them back through that wormhole temporal anomaly thing and they would end up right where they left so there is that possibility there but you know even if that's mildly less of a possibility the obligation is still like well these are my people they this is you know a ship from my fleet these are people that i serve with i need to protect them i need to think about the mission at hand so i i thought that that was a um it seemed like something that is so obvious uh, for Picard at a certain point. And again, that's why I go back to the conversation with Guinan. Like, regardless of what Guinan is saying, that it, it doesn't feel right, and he says, "Well, I need more to go on." Well, the the long and short of it is, it, even from a prime directive perspective, they have tampered too much. They need to untamper what they have tampered with. Get them out of there. Get them back to where they belong. And maybe they're going to die, but. But I guess the attitude at that point is so be it. That's the way it was supposed to go down. Sort of along those lines, then, can we debate a plot point? And I know that's not what this segment is no, about, sure. but I'm, sure. I'm curious. Is there any way, and I understand it works beautifully. I understand it's a wonderfully written episode. Mm-hmm. Is there any way Picard lets Tasha go on the, one, on the uh, 1701C? I mean, I know he did it, mm. so yes, of course, there is a way he does it. But is there any way that actually happens? I mean, this is the guy who's like, who's like, oh my goodness, Captain, it's the it's the one seven zero one C, and Picard's like, don't say anything, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. And Riker's like, oh, we got to go over there and help them, and Picard's like, no, stay still, be quiet, and then they're like, hey, can you help us? And he's like, ah, all right, yeah, get some people over there to go help him. Fine. Is there any way that Picard lets lets Tasha go? That's the moment that he's going with Guinan's gut. I mean, it, it really is. It, it, you know, anything else about just the mechanics of getting them out of there is really, is very academic. All right, so then follow-up question. Should he have actually called Guinan to see if that's what she said? Because <laughs> Sasha shows up and she's like, so I got to go. Guinan said, oh, Guinan said so. Well, okay, then off you go. As opposed to maybe, like wait, Guinan said that? Hang on a second. Let me Let me call her really quick. No, no need. No need. Here, yeah. she left this note. <laughs> Sorry. So you, you, you think, I mean, at that point, at that point, Picard's just all in with whatever Guinan says. I, I think at that moment, he has to be. Like I said, everything else is academic. Everything else is like, okay, they, they showed up. We can send them back through. Regardless of the outcome, we got to send them back through. They don't belong. Mm-hmm. And, and Garrett is down with that. But as a parting gift... But, yeah, yeah, so that, that's the thing. That's the place where it seems like Picard is more influenced by Guinan. My question becomes, what is influencing Tasha? Hmm. Because this Tasha has had three more years, well, two more years to serve on the Enterprise. This Tasha has had time to get to know Guinan. This Tasha doesn't know any differently. Mm-hmm. So Tasha is really just going on. It's like getting advice from a psychic 
You know, I, th- there really is nothing else to go on here. So I also, it, it made me think of two things. One, how much of motivation to go over to the Enterprise C is based on her infatuation with Castillo. And I don't mean to downplay it like it's just, oh, you know, just blinded by this weird romance. I think their chemistry is great. Mm-hmm. And I think it's played beautifully. Um, but clearly that has to be a big part of the motivation. The other part that I thought was really strange is this interesting point here about the honorable death. I mean, for a show that I feel like places very little emphasis on the glory of battle, except for the Klingons, because they're all about it, Mm -hmm. the importance of how Tasha Yar dies is so critical to this story. And it's important to her because she doesn't know the other timeline. She's just going on the idea that maybe in the other timeline, maybe she had a less than spectacular death. Hmm. That's that's really twisted to me. It's really strange to me. It's an interesting. It's almost a. Uh, I don't want to say. I don't want to say retcon. It's an interesting. Um, it kind of is the, a retcon. Well, it's kind no, of that, a retcon. There's, the there's right another word. word, and the word is escaping me right this second. Though it's it's almost like a redemption. Almost like a redemption in a way. I mean, one of the mm-hmm. one of the most wonderful things about the way Tasha died was how horrible the way Tasha died was. Yes. It happened so early in the episode. She wasn't doing anything that should have gotten her killed. She was walking from point A to point B, and life was literally slapped from her. Yeah. And that was yeah. an amazing moment in a not-so-amazing season of Star yeah. Trek. It's just like, wow, that happened. Right. That happened on episodic television. That happened to a main character. And that's kind of the way things go sometimes. And that that was kind of amazing. It's almost like they, they, they went ahead and gave Tasha the kind of death that her character should have had. They gave her I mean they they really gave her a very Klingon death in a way. Yeah, which, and, and I which, think that's what's so incongruous about it, because you think back to Skin of Evil and, and, and like you said, the drama of that moment is that it, it's so sudden and everybody has to deal with it right away. And then there is that nice kind of coda at the end where, where we got the, the holodeck scene and she gets to talk about life and memory and not about death. So it seems very neatly wrapped up there. But then it's sort of like this it's sort of like the the Hollywood idea of a dramatic death and then the Klingon idea of a dramatic death kind of overtake that then it's like no 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 we we got it wrong we got it wrong instead of just having this dramatic moment and then having this this longer moment of people dealing with it later now we have to imagine in our minds heroic Tasha Yar behind the tactical station giving the Romulans hell yeah but that's almost kind of a neat thing for the audience right because Picard doesn't remember that a minute ago he had been talking to Tasha because yeah. a minute ago he wasn't. I mean, the time time went exactly as time had been before the Enterprise uh, C showed up there, right? Right, right. The only one who has any memory, and it's got to be like totally left field when Guinan sits down at the end with the uh, poorly dressed Jordan LaForge and <laughs> says, uh, so tell me about Tasha Yar. And, yeah. of course, my thought was, of course, we leave the ship at that point because the first thing out of Jordy's mouth should have been, <laughs> you ought to ask Data about Tasha. Am I right? I had the same note. <laughs> With yesterday's Enterprise back in its own time, it is also time to put it through the mission log summation. 
pretend we spoiled it. We all we just we already did this throughout this episode. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Does the episode hold up? Show's over. <laughs> <laughs> Show ended uh, fi- log, right? fifty minutes ago. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, this episode absolutely holds up. Look, yeah. if we sit here and think about it too long, there will be things about this episode that bother me. So let's not think about it too much. Okay. Uh, because honestly, this episode, it's great. There's another Enterprise. There's another Enterprise. There's Shooter McGavin. <laughs> I mean, there's so much about this episode of love. The fact that, the fact that there is no. You know what I loved about uh, Police Squad and what I loved about Naked Gun? Mm-hmm. Th- there was no acknowledgement that there was anything funny going on. Now, right. in the second Naked Gun movie, they started acknowledging it. And the third one was just an atrocity. But, I mean, they – and the same thing with Airplane and Airplane 2. Airplane was funny because nobody knew it was funny. Airplane 2 was not as funny because everybody in the movie knew that it was, right? Yeah. How this works is with the exception of Guinan, and we need Guinan there because otherwise we just have a whole new series, right? Right. right. Well, what's really cool in this episode is there's no like, whoa, what was that? Or, oh, did you feel that? Or, I mean, everybody's not walking around feeling like something's odd. Tasha – who has been dead for two years, doesn't feel like there's anything odd until Guinan starts looking at her funny. Yeah. Right? And even then, she doesn't have a weird feeling. She's got whatever it is that Picard has with Guinan. Of like, oh, okay, if Guinan says so. Or actually, for Tasha, it may be, well, if the captain says, if Guinan says so, then it's good enough for me. If it's good enough for good enough for him, it's good enough for good enough for me, I guess would be the thing. Um yeah. yeah, I mean, there's stuff to play with, but it's a time travel episode. I mean, it, it, this is just, yes, it's a great episode. It absolutely holds up. What yeah. say you, sir? Yeah, I, I, unequivocally, yes. I mean, I, I left it out of trivia, but this show got three Emmy nominations. It constantly shows up at the top of lists of the best episodes of Star Trek. Uh, I mean, TNG specifically, but Star Trek as a whole ever. Hmm. Um and, you know, I feel like I, I've been kind of ambivalent about some episodes recently. Like, you know, I, I like them, but I, I, I didn't come on our show and just go, oh, my God, this is the best show I've ever seen. You know, go watch it immediately. There's no question about this one. There, there's just no question at all. But here's the important thing to me anyway. Its greatest payoff comes from familiarity with Star Trek. Sure. So I, so I wouldn't just put this on someone for whom this was – Totally new. Yeah, you know. <laughs> this is almost a reward for season one. It, it really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you didn't know what we were doing with Tasha. We didn't know what we were doing with Tasha. You sat through the whole season. Boy, code of honor, am I right? Tell you what we're going to do. Season two? Okay. Season three? Yeah, here's this thing. Here's like this payoff to so much stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can enjoy it even without that context. But man, if you've followed it all along... Mm-hmm. It, just the payoff is terrific. So now, what about messages? What about message moral meanings? Eh, eh, pass. Yeah. I think you said um, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. <laughs> right. I believe you said that. And yeah. uh, I mean, certainly that's there. I mean, there are a number of messages that you could probably find and tack on, but there's not, there's not an overwhelming message, I don't believe, in this episode. And that's fine. Yeah. This is a, just a just a great production, uh, start to finish. I think yeah. so. I mean, I, I think there's there are moral quandaries here, but mm-hmm. again, it, it, it's kind of separated from the real world. Other than when you're talking about this big scale, like you know, how do we really contemplate what is acceptable if we're talking about a military operation or or something like that? 
and it's not really a message, but I, I had this interesting conversation with someone. I, I always never do this, but uh, a friend of mine who's been following along with Mission Log and following along with NextGen, and I said, hey, we're, we're coming up on uh, yesterday's Enterprise. And he said, oh, I love that episode. And I said, great. What is it about? <laughs> you know, what, what's, the, <laughs> what, what's the message? What, what's the moral and the meaning that you got out of it? And he said, oh, well, you know, you got the ship and you got uh, Tasha comes back. And I'm like, yeah, what's the central moral question. <laughs> What's it really? Oh yeah. So I guess it really didn't have that. But what we did start to talk about that was kind of interesting was this idea of whose reality, whose, whose experience is valid. You know, I, I'm standing here in my shoes, looking out through my eyeballs at you and I'm deciding that everything about my life experience up until this moment is valid you know, it, it, it is all what is the truth because that's what I know as the truth. Um, and Picard is sort of in that position in this episode. But then somebody shows up who has a totally valid other perspective, a totally valid other experience of their life. And then they get to decide between them, well, how do we actually let this play out? Whose reality do we let take precedence here? Because reality for Garrett is they just got moved 22 years in the future and avoided a fight where they were about to die. But Picard's reality is we have been fighting this fight for 22 years and I get to send you back to die because that protects me hmm. and potentially resets things. So again, we don't get to play that out on just sort of our day-to-day -day interactions but I thought the idea that my friend posed to me was pretty interesting, just to say that um, we get to decide every time we have a conversation with somebody whose reality is the real reality. And there's your your weekly Star Trek mind effery, <laughs> mind, mind bleepery, courtesy of this episode. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, man. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell him to never tell me that again before I go into the Mission Log. <laughs> hey, speaking of episodes of Mission Log, we should let people know that Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Find out more at roddenberry.com. Uh, all kinds of stuff to check out there, from things to buy to things to learn, uh, roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That is trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Ken, it, it just doesn't end with yesterday's Enterprise. No, no, we'll be back next week, and we will be discussing The Offspring. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. Should we do that? Should we do what? Should we send invitations to people to listen to Mission Log? <laughs> Maybe we should. Oh, Maybe. you're cordially invited to download this free <laughs> podcast. Oh. <laughs> oh, I think I will. How nice of the guys. They, they invited me. <laughs> I guess I better do it now. Did you get to listen to the show this week? No. Ah, they sent an invitation. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Should we send out save the dates? And then, yeah, right. <laughs> and save send the an invitation. Thursday at midnight. All right. Bye. Bye. And transmission.